Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. I am. Uh, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy you made it back for for our second show. We got Dion Lim on the show today. Dion is an anchor woman and a reporter at ABC Seven News in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, we got a lot of uh, cool things that we're talking about. So uh, before we get to that, I just want to take a second and thank you all for tuning in. Uh, to the first episode, I was blown away, honestly, like for a new podcast, usually the numbers are really, really low. People don't listen. And uh, this show has has had a really strong response in terms of people listening, in terms of how long you're sticking with the show. And uh, I shared this on social media, but I was blown away with just where in the world people are coming from. Obviously, United States, Canada, but France, Sweden, the UK, Australia, Norway, Pakistan, Malta, Spain, Argentina, Ukraine, Hungary, and Belgium. And I mean, we're like four days into this show at this point. So thank you so much for everyone from around the world for tuning in, uh, for all the, the nice notes that I've gotten on, on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm, I'm just glad that people are listening and that there's something that I'm doing that's speaking to you. It's... Uh, it's exciting. If this is your first time joining, welcome. Uh, this show is really a place for people in the in the TV and film industry to talk about what's happening in our industry right now because of coronavirus. And uh, Dion is is a really interesting guest today because for me, as I, I was a lifestyle producer for 15 years, I worked on the shows This Old House and Ask This Old House and got laid off about two months ago lifestyle programs and other, you know, fiction shows, comedies, dramas, a lot of that has been shut down almost entirely. Cooking shows, travel shows, you name it. There there's no production happening. News is a completely different business, right? News never stopped. People need to know what's happening in this crisis. People need to know what are the new regulations from the governor? What's coming out of the White House? What's the CDC saying? It's the news people that are bringing you that information. But they're people just like you and me. So in the same way that I don't want to be in an office right now and don't want to be around other people, news doesn't really want to be either. They can't be all crammed in a newsroom like they were two or three months ago. So every news station has handled it a little differently across the country. Uh, at Dion Station, ABC7 News in San Francisco, they've essentially set up remote studios at, at most of their, uh, their on-air talent's houses. And Dion's certainly one of them. She's been uh, anchoring the news from a spare bedroom. She's been reporting the news out on the street. Here's that interview, Dion Lim. You've got you've got this home studio set up now. I've seen some of that on social media. Like, when did that start? Were, were you still going into the station every day for a while at the beginning of this? And and are you still? I guess. Yes. Um, we had to feel it out like every other news station across the country and in the world is making the decision who stays at the station, who gets to go home, judging people's comfort levels. Are you OK doing an interview that's socially distanced while wearing a mask? Some people aren't. And I get that. Some are high risk and don't want to have a part of it and just want to do Zoom interviews all day. And of course, that's OK. You have to make those concessions. For me, when this all hit, we were all just in a state of, uh, what to do next? Right. Because 
we were slowly beginning to see other stations go live from home and make the decision that all their news anchors should be at home. But then the question stands is what happens when there's breaking news and you need to be at the station where you have the wire service or the producer screaming, hey, we just got this new information in. It's not the same as calling or going on Slack and telling you, hey, we have these new developments. The immediacy is not there, simply put. So it was a gradual rollout. We had to figure out first and foremost logistics and what type of logistics we were going to participate in. Were we going to use the iPhone setup and the iPhone DeGero? That's the program that we use to go live from the field from an iPhone and from a you know, small backpack size unit. They decided at my station to provide us with the full on, you know, DeGero backpack. So it's higher quality, higher resolution, quicker, uh, less delay and feedback time. These are the um, ones that have like the, they have like 5G. Uh, it's like a cell phone without a, without the phone display, essentially. It's a phone modem, <laughs> right? And you can you can upload from anywhere, essentially, and do live video. Exactly. And we also have the luxury of being able to hardwire as well. So the signal is even better than if you are in the field going 5G, um, which is already pretty good. It's already what you see on television in many cases. Um, but then we want to step further and put in a full on studio. And it was interesting because it's a camera. It is not quite studio grade, but but pretty close to it. Um, and the three point lighting, you know, you have the the gels over some splash lights. And to be honest, it looks pretty good. It took a lot of tweaking. It took a lot of um, logistics in figuring out the sound situation. My setup is in a an empty room because I mean, I live in San Francisco. You don't have room for a full blown Sure. Studio set up. So here I am in this blank room and I had, oh my gosh, I remember that first weekend. I think I must have heard from everyone under the sun um, about the Echo. Even my mom in Connecticut, who was <laughs> streaming the newscast live on abc7news.com, was emailing me saying, Echo is so bad. Make Echo go away. And I was like, mom, I can't. That And I had my manager saying, Dion, can you fix this? How do you do that? People were sending me tips. Turns out you can use towels and blankets and all kinds of stuffed animals. And, you know, I think I had a rack of clothes in there for a while, too. But it's the things you got to do. And people are extremely forgiving. And they actually thought it was pretty funny when I showed the behind the scenes setup before the engineer could come in and bring me all of the foam padding for the walls. Yeah. So, uh, like, part of the reason I wanted to start this podcast was just sort of in watching the programming that is happening from, from you know, news programs to late night shows and just sort of figuring out, for me, the workflow aspect is super interesting. And I have no yeah. idea if other people are into that or not. But, like, <laughs> I, I'm curious, like, when, when this setup is coming in, like, who's who's figuring that out with you? You know, is, is it an engineer from the station? Is, is there – are there separate people working on lighting and camera? Like – how did they figure out what this mobile mobile kit, mobile studio is going to look like and, and mm -hmm. how it's going to function? You know, everyone's mobile studio is different. And that's the challenge, too. We have one engineer who's been kind of designated the field one who comes over. He's got his mask and his gloves on and he's playing the role of everybody. So, of course, it's not like having a network lighting studio guy right. come over and an entire team, but 
it's pretty good because the guy that we have um, has been an engineer and a photo photog for, gosh, probably more than 30 years. So he plays a jack of all trades. But what I find unique is that, for example, we have one sports guy who goes live in his apartment and he has to figure out the backdrop. So he's got a shelf full of bobbleheads of all the different sports players he's collected nice. through years. And in a million years, you would never find that acceptable. Someone's couch and, you know, members of the Warriors in caricature form. Uh, we have another sports guy who goes live in front of his very elaborate looking fireplace mantle. And that has posed challenges, too, because framing and if you move. Oh, that's another thing. You have no camera person. So if you are off your mark, people will tell you, oh, you're a little crooked or your plant is dying. I have a morning reporter friend who has had people comment on how she needs to snip the tips off of the plant behind you to wow. keep the branches from. People from, see uh, everything. Yeah. And I think they've enjoyed that, that voyeuristic um, kind of glimpse behind the scenes, because we've we've been told for years that authenticity is key because no longer can you be the guy who has the deep booming voice talking, you know, and holding your hands a certain way and being so authoritative. It's not working anymore. And in this age of social media where celebrities and high profile people are sharing glimpses of their life, that's the only thing that really is unique. I've always said this in that the last thing you want to do is be a talking head because everyone's news is pretty much stacked the same way. You have right. breaking news off the top. You have some fluff story later on. You have to differentiate yourself, and you do that by being authentic. And this is definitely a way that people are um, showing their authenticity. Look at Kelly Ripa. She shows off her gray hairs and the oatmeal that she's eating in the morning, and people are eating it up. It makes you relate. It makes you realize, okay, we're all going through this together, and it's going to be okay. Right. It's so funny too, just thinking of how that shift has happened so quickly. Like there was that, that viral video, I think it was the BBC, right? The guy where like his kid ran in during an interview like a year ago and it was like the sensation. And now it's like, you know, everyone is, is dealing with that, whether it's kids or dogs or, you know, whatever. There's just, there's always, yeah, you see that glimpse of how people live their life and the people they live it with and it's just it's all part of it we're all we're all dealing with that <laughs> and, and, and it's a it's a delicate balance too because obviously it's funny once when your dog is barking in the middle of your weather forecast but what happens when it gets to a point where okay the screaming child in the background this is getting a little annoying right i'm switch the channel. And that's what we're dealing with, too, is what's the threshold of what people will accept and what happens after we go back to quote unquote normal. I know there's talk of us going back to the studio, of course, but ah, are we going to be wearing button downs and relaxing our dress code? Or I don't know. That's the big question mark. So are you in terms of like sort of what the newscast looks like these days? You're all in separate locations. Uh, no one's in the studio at this point. 
You know, we have people in the studio. We have one per shift just in case there was something that we could not handle or just in case, God forbid, our signal goes down, even if we check it a million times just for safety. So it's a skeleton crew. I forgot what the percentage is, but I want to say it's about 25% or so of our workforce, if not less, um, is in the studio. And of course, you know, being on the front lines as categorized as an essential worker, we are still in the field as well. I mean, obviously, if we can avoid it, if we can do a Zoom or a FaceTime, yeah, we'll take it. But there are some stories you just have to go out on and yeah. do person and find people on the street, if you can find any people on the street. And you know, we've we've relied on people shooting their own video now and sending in their own pictures. Yeah, I, I think about the reporters a lot uh, with these protests that have been happening at, at different state mm -hmm. houses across the country and, you know, trying to reopen the states and just uh, most of the people there aren't practicing the social distancing. They're not wearing the masks and, you know, they're they're in a pretty dense concentration and there are yeah. reporters that have to go up to them and, you know, they have to they have to shoot what's going on and they have to interview these people. And, you know, I, I just it, it's it's tough when the story requires you to do something that may put yourself at risk. Yes. And it's bananas to me because before putting yourself at risk was you know, something that you could calculate and you could gauge and maybe get around. I mean, already in San Francisco, we go out with guards because there is this culture in the public where there are bad people out there who want to target news vans because they see us as, oh, fake news. We need to take them down, the mainstream media. So for the past several years, we've already had that safeguard in place. But this is a whole new risk, one that you cannot control. Somebody running up to you, yeah, maybe you have a guard, but if you're in a protest, how do you distance yourself? I mean, we've had some safeguards in place, which I know many people feel comfortable with. We have these microphones on poles. In the beginning, people were using broom handles and, and duct taping the microphone to the end of it. Right. And it looked ridiculous, but it has become the new normal. So we've tried to mitigate the risk in those ways. And when it comes to if there is a, a large group of people, you know, making the call of, okay, we got to just send up a, if, if we can safely send up a drone, we'll do that. Or, you know, shooting from far away and explaining and being very explicit that, hey, for social distancing purposes, we are choosing to stay far from the scene. But you can see behind me, there is a group of people who are choosing to break these rules. And I guess, again, it's that transparency factor that's super key. And I feel like that's been one of the challenges in this. And I'm curious, sort of from a news standpoint, how you feel about it, of just grappling with the the scale and the severity of this story, you know, as we're talking today, the death tolls eclipsed 83,000. Probably by the time this this gets uploaded, you know, we're going to be approaching 90, if not over 90,000. It, it's it's huge, right? I mean, that's like they keep talking about more deaths than the Vietnam War. And f w when I put that in perspective, I think I don't know if you've ever been to Washington and seen the Vietnam Memorial and it just stretches like as far as the eye can see. It's this big black piece of granite or whatever. And the names on it are teeny tiny. And you just realize yeah. that, you know, for a block or two or however long it is, you know, there's that many names on it. But like, you know, when you're trying to, t to share this story with an audience, like 
I, it's so hard. I feel that there's not there's not an easy visual. You know, there's not houses that have been blown apart by a tornado, or yeah. you know, a nine eleven watching the twin towers come down, or you know, just we don't have a sense of of the human piece of it or or the scale of it like how you guys must must wrestle with that every day right oh and it's the problem that we've faced when it comes with that desensitizing factor because for the longest time when the strings of shootings were happening across the country mass shootings or at suspected ones we became so desensitized yes we saw the pictures yes we were talking with victims and seeing it on the front lines but uh, god the numbers almost became numbers in a blur after a while and i think as a journalist you really want to make sure people understand the gravity and you put it into context so at least from my television station, we've really invested in something called data journalism, where it is going a little bit deeper and putting the numbers to that context where people can really grapple with and understand, yes, Vietnam War, but what does that mean? What does that look like? And it's not just in graphics, because numbers are one thing. But when you Go out, and that goes along with how we cover certain stories. When you talk about the need for how many face masks a hospital needs, that's the type of story that you can't do by doing a Zoom interview and having a talking head tell you. You have to go out and you have to go to a, a, a drive for PPEs and hear from doctors and see those boxes stacked up in a U-Haul. So that way people get the visual. It's unfortunate that that's what it takes, but in order to have that maximum impact, you have to have the people speaking from their heart directly and in person, you cannot, it does not necessarily transcend a computer screen. And it's, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know how to wrestle with it myself of just, mm-hmm. you know, and, and calculating that danger too, I guess, of it's still out there, you know, up here in Boston, it's starting to get warm and people are, are going out a lot more, you know, they want to go for yeah. walks or hikes or whatever. And there's a part of you that's like, yeah, everything feels pretty normal. But then there's a part of you that just doesn't trust anyone around you either. <laughs> and like, <laughs> does that person have it or do I have it? And am I giving it to a vulnerable person? And, you know, it's, yeah, it's this invisible thing that, and you don't know, you know, so many people are asymptomatic that are spreading it. So yeah, it's a level of distrust that um, we haven't seen before either, because anybody could have it. And since the current administration and the coining of the fake news and that distrust, there's already been that layer. But now there's a distrust on top of that, of what the media is sharing, how true that is. And you have this large population of people who don't believe that the virus is as bad as it is or some of the data that's coming out. And um, it's just breeding this sense of, okay, we already don't trust the media enough as it is, but now we also have this distrust in what our health officials are saying. So it's all, again, that uphill battle. Um, And and there are days where I just feel really defeated, um, where I'll get some viewer emails or, or comments on social media saying, why are you spreading this? You know, we need to go back to work and there's no response that will be satisfactory to these folks. Yeah, it's, it's scary. And it's, it's tough because it, it gets interpreted through a partisan lens and i don't think it is I, you know I, I i it feels like objective scientific facts that 
are being they're being weaponized by one side and and therefore it becomes partisan but just looking at the data yeah here here's what the scientists are saying here's here's their recommendation of how you should handle this and just i don't know that people not accepting that or yeah and and i feel bad for the people that want to go back to work certainly and and i'm in that boat right now too of like you know <laughs> i i would love nothing more than for production to start back up and for me to go you know work on a set somewhere but there's a piece of it that like people seem to be equating i can't work with I want to go to Applebee's on Friday night or the Olive Garden or go walk around the mall or see a movie or what. And it's like, is that really the best thing we should be doing right now? If if everyone is telling us that, you know, this this wave is hopefully cresting, but, you know, we're at the top right now and we still have to come back down this curve. Right. Why is there this urgency to to get back to everything. And and that's the problem is that, you know, people are seeking answers and there's so much information out there and we're balancing how to disseminate it all. And that responsibility right now, I feel is greater than ever because, for example, I just heard a story about modeling and how there are so many different organizations that are trying to do their best to make predictions on how many people will make who will contract the virus um, by the end of the summer or in June, the beginning of it. And how do you make sense of it and then boil it down to two minutes and then have it be satisfactory enough for people to accept it and say, okay, you've done a good responsible job. And again, we're going up against all the social media that is pushing things out that are, you know, not necessarily putting things into context. So that's adding an extra layer of challenge to, to what we're doing um, that we've never faced before to this magnitude, I don't think. Uh, one other piece that I want to sort of talk to you about in, in sort of covering all this, and I know it's something that you've been really outspoken for and and really an advocate about, is sort of the the term Chinese virus and the 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 racial connotations that that have that have gone along with this disease and you know some attacks on the Asian American community because of it. Just what are you seeing in San Francisco right now or in your reporting across the country? Oh my God, it is at a fever pitch to the point where you almost can get PTSD covering this yeah. truly. Because there has already been, and for many years, there has been this anti-Asian sentiment brewing. And you know a little bit about my background, but I grew up in very non-diverse parts of the country. Um, born in Michigan, grew up in Ohio, and then Connecticut, and then started my career um, in Kansas City, and went on to Charlotte and to Tampa Bay. And these are not necessarily hotbeds for diversity. Um, so it's always been something that I've you know, been passionate about bringing to the forefront, but never in my wildest dreams did I think it would happen in a diverse area of the country, such as California or the Bay Area, where one out of three people is some kind of Asian. Right. And I think it's even more so in, in certain cities. I, it was not really at the forefront of a lot of reporting up until I would say maybe a year ago. There was one case that hit me hard and I had the first mainstream case of the story to report on this 88-year-old at the time woman who was beaten and left for dead in a playground, Asian-American woman. 
And all the people in the community told me it's because Asian Americans, at least the older school ones, are easy targets. They're older. They don't like to ruffle feathers culturally. And I can attest because my parents are like this. They don't want to cause a fuss. They want to keep their nose clean, their head down, work hard, don't get deported. And that is your way to success and happiness. So there was a spate of older Asian Americans who were getting attacked. And after that one case, because the family was so brave in sharing her story, allowed me into her hospital room where she was in a coma, allowed me to follow her story, and really spoke out, got community groups together, a neighborhood watch group was formed, uh, that it became kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, she was the poster child for speaking out and making change. So there was already kind of brewing this need to represent the Asian Americans who were underserved, especially in Chinatown um, and the subsequent cases where they were beaten. Um, I remember there was a case of three older men who were beaten in broad daylight, knocked down to the ground, um, their watches stolen. And then coronavirus hit about a year later. And the catalyst case was this older man, Asian American, who was assaulted in a rather sketchy part of town uh, known as the Bayview, where there had been a lot of crime, you know, historically. And he was seen on video, humiliated, beaten, his recyclables, he was collecting them, they were stolen from him. And this video went viral to the point where there were celebrities talking about it. Asian Americans, prominent ones, Daniel Day Kim, um, you know, the director of Crazy Rich Asians, um, national level folks were speaking out about it. And it caught fire on social media, on Instagram. That is where it started. And for the first time, we had this, um, you know, group of millennials get in, get involved wanting to fight the virus. Hate is not a virus is one of the hashtags. And in the video, you heard this teenager or whoever he is yell at this older man, go back to China and yell racial slurs. And that was the beginning of when Chinese virus was being coined and people were starting to really spew these hateful slurs and phrases. And it kind of just snowballed from there. People started feeling empowered, saying, my God, you know what? This guy has so much support behind him. Police listened and took swift action, arrested a couple of folks and started paying attention. A GoFundMe was was formed and a, a tremendous amount of money was raised for this man and his family. And it, we became unified at, to a level that I had never seen before. And it was encouraging, but yet really disheartening because it continues. The, the Chinese virus and the uh, the discrimination has not stopped. In some ways, I think it has gotten worse because people see that we have banded together. And I use the term we because I'm in it. And it's no longer just something that I'm reporting on. But I see my own grandma in some of these victims. I experience the hate through letters that I receive in the mail saying that the Chinese who are from mainland China have brought the disease and brought nothing but negativity to this country. That's a true, that's a true email I was sent. No, a physical letter. It's 
reached levels that I don't think are necessarily getting better, but it's getting better in the fact that we're having the conversation for the first time and people are feeling comfortable about it. How much of it do you think is that need to blame something for this? Like this virus, it's like we were talking about before. You can't, you can't see it. It's spread all over the world at this point. Like it, it almost feels like people are just looking for some kind of scapegoat, whether or not they're pointing the finger in the right direction at all. Like it, it feels like, Blaming China has become, you know, a default excuse, I guess, or, you know, just it, it's it's a way to to put some sort of, of face, I guess, on this this invisible, you know, viral villain. Yeah, it's the easy thing to do, isn't it? It's everyone is always looking for a scapegoat or we could even categorize it as looking for closure. And you Mm. see that from speaking with victims of, um, you know, abuse or, you know, someone to hold accountable, someone to hold responsible, because in a way that provides comfort and in a way that also breeds more animosity and you know, it's 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 the responsible thing to do, but it's also the more challenging thing to do. Isn't it so much easier to say it came from China and Chinese people brought it versus, OK, well, let's go through all the data and really dig into deeply what the cause of it is. For example, in California, our governor um, came out not too long ago saying that um, many cases stemmed from nail salons. Well, the Vietnamese community automatically said, hey, how can we be the responsible parties for this when there is no data as to where the nail salons in question are or who owns those nail salons. It's it, it takes lots of questioning and it's easier for people to then jump on board and after hearing that say, oh, nail salons caused this when really that is not, you know, that is yet to be seen. Yeah. In yeah. some ways, I feel like the advocacy that you're doing in the Bay Area is is very good because, as you said, there is such a large Asian American population there. I wonder if you've heard from other parts of the country where that might not be the case, where, you know, there might be one or two percent of the population that's Asian. Like, I wonder if it's if it's more of a problem in some of those places. Oh, God, it's. It is. I think the problem is equally as bad, if not worse, but it is under the surface because the population is lower. I just spoke to a friend of mine who is a reporter anchor in Miami, and in Miami, there's a large Latino population, not Asian population. But for her as an Asian-American journalist, she goes, Dion, this problem is everywhere, but no one's talking about it. So Mm. the level of caring about it isn't there. And that's a problem. So we talked about where ways to still get the story out. She has a very large social media following. Okay. You know, that's a start. That's a communication form. But again, you know, her following is somewhere, um, you know, from all over the country. So the key is to getting these people of prominence in those geographic areas to speak out and say something, because that is when people will start to listen. You know, as journalists, I think we're supposed to be non-biased, right? And we're supposed to be, uh, you know, just telling the facts, but we cannot sit back and see bullying and xenophobia happen and not 
feel personally motivated to want to do something. And I think that's okay. I mean, I think, yes, you cannot go out with your political views and start making commentary. No, but there is a place to show your perspective and how that in not necessarily influences, but how that shapes and determines um, what is important and how that is something that will be of value to your audience. Yeah. And I mean, you're you're reporting on facts that are happening. You're reporting on, on attacks that have happened or, you know, yeah. th- things like that. So it's not it's not advocacy just for the sake of advocacy. It's you're, you're shining, you're, you know, you're using your megaphone to, to bring attention to an issue that is an issue happening in the community. So I think it's perfectly valid to cover it. Absolutely. I want to move to something that's, um, I I know you're equally as passionate about, but, but for different (laughs) reasons, uh, I started reading your book, uh, make your moment, which I I think it's awesome. Uh, the, the subtitle on that's the savvy woman's communication playbook for getting the success you want. And you go into a lot of stories in that about your journey in just sort of figuring out the interpersonal side of the business that, you know, you, you learned sort of the on-air piece and all in school and figured out that part of it. But the piece that never really got taught was all the, all the people skills. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the majority of it in Silicon Valley, especially we talk about emotional intelligence or EQ and that really is more valuable than anything because you can have someone who has 10 degrees and has gone to Harvard and scored 100% on every standardized test. But if you can't get an audience or someone within your workplace to listen to you or want to work with you or be likable enough to have that level of connection with your peers, then you got nothing. And especially in storytelling and especially during this time, people are already on edge. People are already feeling insecure and scared. And the last thing they want is someone who barges in and doesn't have that certain something, that tact and that communication skill to make you want to open up and tell a story. I think you're also, you're you're pretty honest in your book about some of the missteps you had. And I, I think, <laughs> there, but, but there's an importance in that, in that vulnerability, right? That like, I feel like culturally for a long time, that was, that was frowned upon, right? To, to, to open up about things that you were insecure about or things that, that you feel badly about how they went or whatever, just there, there were, there was always sort of an expectation that I feel like in the last maybe five, 10 years has started to, to erode, but that expectation that, everybody's always perfect and everybody's putting their their best face forward every day all day and whatever your private struggles are they're things that you keep private and maybe your family knows about them but that's about it you know it's not it's not something you talk about with with a lot of people and i feel like you know it i think it took a lot of courage for you to write uh, about some of those things and just yeah to 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 be vulnerable like that and to mm-hmm to let other people see that vulnerability and maybe see that reflected back in themselves too, of just, you know, what, what they have to work on as well. Ah, it's okay. And that's what I keep telling my mentees, right. And my peers who do seek some guidance is that forget about all the people who told you it's not okay to cry. No, you don't want to be a snot faced mess when you're talking to the boss, but 
it's okay to be human. And that human element is what makes you unique. It's what makes you stand out. Growing up in a very traditional Chinese household as an ABC, American-born Chinese, or as my mom would say, a banana, because I look yellow on the outside and, and white on the inside. <laughs> um, I was always told uh, to be the best, right? And there was that pressure to be the best. And the cultural problem was that that does not necessarily resonate, because here I am seeing my peers grow up, their family hugs them and says, I love you, and great job. But I never got any of that. So the pressure was so immense. So that created a lot of tension between me and my mother growing up. And I remember it clear as day um, because she's always been very critical of me and critical, but out of a place of love. She will watch my newscasts. If one of my eyebrows is drawn on crooked, she will draw a diagram and <laughs> email it to me and point out your left eyebrow is two millimeters higher than your right eyebrow. And I was so mad at one day. Oh God, I normally would have fired back a very nasty email. One, that was very inappropriate and my mother would just take it and then criticize me more um i decided to say okay i'm going to share this really horrendous rendering that's so embarrassing with my followers take that mom you're going to get humiliated from all of my thousands of people who watch me and follow me online but to much to my chagrin, what happened was is I was flooded with messages from people who said, my mom does the same thing. She's <laughs> doing it because she loves you. And it created this bond that I, I slowly began to see that my mom does love me. And yes, it drives me bananas that everybody else's mother um, drives them crazy as well. So on a deeper level, it's allowed me to connect with my, my audience and then also my peers who've said, yeah, trust me, I have a, a Jewish mom who is equally as overbearing. And, you know, then you forge those relationships. So then when you need help, when you need help, a source maybe, they'd be okay with sharing it with you because you already have that bond. It's been a really fun process. Scary, yes, but also at the same time, really rewarding. Yeah. And I think you, you've done a lot to just for for women in the news field that you know you you talk about it was predominantly a male dominated field and even even as women started coming in you know there've been female anchors obviously and you know female weather people and stuff for a long time but yeah. still culturally i think the the newsroom was a place that was very testosterone laden right and <laughs> Like that, that started to change, uh, maybe partially because of me too, but you know, even in the last probably five, 10 years, like what, from your perspective, what, what has, what's the evolution been being a woman in a newsroom? I worked at places that ran the gamut on the spectrum of women cheering women on early in my career. I remember, and I participated in it too, because that was the culture of being very competitive whenever there was someone else that was a woman who you perceived to be more beautiful than you. Um, you would instantly size her up, look her up and down, give her that side eye and start looking up her bio thinking, okay, well, she's not as accomplished as me, so I'm better. Ha 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 ha. And it, it was a terrible culture that I think was egged on only by, um, uh, gosh, for lack of a better way to say it, management that always wanted uh, 
you know, their on-air talent to be so perfect and so beautiful and what the perception of a news anchor should be. I remember there was one manager who told me I needed to work. uh, I could only wear short sleeves if I kept my arms toned. And whenever he would see me, would joke, but not really joke. Have you done your push-ups today? Wow. So I would, yeah. So I was obsessive about it and I would go to the gym and do all these arm exercises to the point where one day, and I talk about this in the book, one day I looked at myself next to another female anchor and I thought, oh my God, I look like the Hulk. Like my arms are like Arnold Schwarzenegger's and cannot, I can't go through a doorway because this is so absurd. And my girlfriend sat me down and she was like, Dion, this is absurd. What a man tells you, a not very fit man, mind you, what does he have anything to do with your own self-esteem and your own, you know, view of your body? You were perfectly fine before and you knew it, but now you've become, you know, you've become this obsessive over what? Nothing. And that was when the shift kind of happened. And that was at also at the same time where women started sharing more in Facebook groups and um, I think really realizing that the answer was not to be competitive. The answer was to be the best and yes, compete against yourself and push yourself as far as you can, but also realize that we all have our unique traits and talents and really surrounding yourself with people who believe that as well. Um, a woman who uh, was the main anchor in Charlotte, took me under her wing after I got to the station, and she gave me a big hug on that first day. And I thought it was so strange. I almost didn't hug her back. And I thought, (laughs) why are you hugging me? And it was because she said, Dion, thank goodness you're here because now I can take a vacation day. We're no longer short. And I thought that was so lovely. But then when I took over her job and she got moved to the early evenings and I got moved to the late show, which was always perceived as, you know, the more high profile job. I started crying because I thought she was going to hate me. This really kind motherly woman who I look up to, who was so steadfast and respected in the industry. And she said to me, Dion, we all have our seasons and our skills and our talents. And now is just your time. And this is your time to shine. And I thought that was so remarkable that I said, my God, I never want to surround myself with people who are full of drama and think of me as a threat ever again. I want to be a Sonia Gant. That's her name. And that's that's how I've tried, um, you know, to kind of model things and, and really um, kind of show my my team because that's that's how you lead and that's how it, it really should be. Yeah. And, and that's that's such a beautiful story, too, of just sort of taking what she taught you and internalizing it for yourself, too. And then wanting to lead by that example, you know, that you're you're multiplying that positivity <laughs> then, you know, and it, it, it just yeah. grows exponentially because then people see you acting that way and they want to present that way. And that, you know, it just, yeah, you can, you're kind of responsible for your work culture, you know, for, for better or for worse. And, you know, you can be, you know, the asshole yelling at everybody, or you can be the kind person. And <laughs> I've certainly been both. And, you know, right? I like to, I, I want to try to be the, the latter as much as I can. And, you know, I think it, it, sometimes it takes having a, a positive role model like that to, to say, oh, yeah, no, that's right. It, you don't have to be this way. Right. And I had a manager also who, God, this was awful. A female woman, you know, a woman at that, tell me, Dion, if you're going to be a leader, 
you need to yell at your people and put them in their place and show them who's boss. And I thought that was the way to do it. But I made someone cry and it was the worst feeling. Yeah. And you're right. You have to lead by example. And it sounds so cliche and I hate it because it's like those motivational posters that are on the wall at your elementary school of an eagle soaring above right. the mountaintop. <laughs> but, but, but really – if you are genuinely okay with yourself, and I talk about this um, extensively as well, you need to dig down and be vulnerable and okay and realize what is wrong within yourself and fix that first because you are not going to be successful in communicating or in your career when you cannot emote what you are truly feeling with yourself first. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's great advice. All right, there it is. Dion Lim. Dion is the anchor on ABC 7 News in San Francisco. She also is the author of Make Your Moment, The Savvy Woman's Communication Playbook for Getting the Success You Want. You can get that uh, wherever you buy your books. You can also download it from the Kindle store and places like that. It's a really good read. If you're, if you're at a crossroads in your career and just trying to figure out how to navigate all of this and, and figure out the interpersonal stuff, uh, Dion is is really good at, at being a teacher there. So that's uh, that's the show today. I do want to give you a preview of the show we have coming up on Thursday. It's with actor Chris Agos, and he's got a lot to say about being a working actor during this time, how to stay busy during this crisis, or at least if you're not working, what things you can work on on yourself so that when the time comes, you can be ready to work. So here's a little preview of what's coming up on Thursday with Chris Agos. You know, acting is is very short term work. I mean, I sometimes work for a client for as little as a day. Right. You know, but I but I want to be hired by them again. So not only am I paying attention to the job that I'm doing on the day, but I also, you know, make sure that I'm following up and I uh, I make sure I keep track of them. Um, and like you said, you, you you know, you keep in touch and you do your networking stuff in a very respectful sort of non cringy way, right? Because we can smell, you know, people who are just kind of fishing for work a mile away. Right. Um, but if you just kind of act like a normal human being and you treat these people like friends or at least acquaintances that you'd like to keep in touch with, then it comes off as much, much more um, palatable and people then don't mind that you keep in touch with them. All right. That's Chris Agos coming up on Thursday's show. Make sure you subscribe so that you get that in your feed before anybody else. You'll know when it's live and you'll be able to listen to it. And also, if you can, just leave me a quick rating, leave a review. It does really help, especially for a new show like this, to, uh, to help build a following, build an audience. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram, and I'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. Stay safe.